nutrient density is a derivative of the health of our soils, period. Welcome to the 279th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, regenerative agriculture, regional food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. If we are what we eat, then we better start paying extremely close attention to how the soil that produces our food is treated. Because, as Alan Williams makes clear, there is a direct link between the biome beneath our feet and the bounty on our table. Besides being a sixth-generation family farmer and founding partner of Grassfed Insights, Understanding Ag, and the Soil Health Academy, Williams holds a doctorate in livestock genetics. He's consulted with more than 4,000 farmers and ranchers in the U.S., Canada, Mexico, South America, and other countries on operations ranging from a few acres to over 1 million acres in size. Besides working with farmers and ranchers looking to adopt regenerative practices such as adaptive grazing and cover cropping, Dr. Williams has also been involved with research that's studying the intimate connection between the nutrient density of food and soil health. What's exciting about the results emerging from this research is that it's hinting at ways farmers and ranchers can use soil to not only produce food that's good for the land and their bottom line, but people's health as well. In 2022, LSB invited Allen to Minnesota to talk to farmers about ways of using soil health and regenerative agriculture to bring the land back to life practically and profitably. As part of these events, we've launched a four-part podcast series featuring conversations with Williams. In episodes 276, 277, and 278, he talked about the principles of regenerative agriculture and the three rules of adaptive stewardship, as well as described four examples of farming operations that are utilizing regenerative practices on a high level. In this episode, Alan gives a summary of the science that's linking living soil with healthy food. Making such a connection holds exciting possibilities for the land, farmers, rural communities, the food industry, and anyone who eats. To me, this is one of the most exciting things that that we're seeing now from uh, implementing regenerative practices. You know, we've known for quite a while, and there there's quite a few studies actually out there that have been published that you know document the significant decline in nutri- nutritive value and density, you know, nutrient density in various food products. Uh, so we've been seeing that for more than four decades now. So that's nothing new. And that shouldn't surprise anybody. And again, there's there's a whole host of studies out there that, that have been documenting that. So the first question you have to ask is, why is that occurring? And so that leads to the next question. And the next question is, how does nutrient density get into our food to begin with? So to answer that question, I have to go back to what I call the foundations of regenerative agriculture and soil health, and that is the soil itself. Nutrient density is a derivative of the health of our soils, period. And, and I'll give you an example. You know, there, there's been a growing trend to raise a lot of our plant-based foods, uh, you know, hydroponically, vertically, you know, things like that, uh, devoid of soil, right? Or you know, where we're using just a little bit of soil in pots or whatever the case may be. And that's been highly touted as our future. You know, how do we grow more food in the future? The problem, though, is that because they are either completely devoid of soil 
or they're grown in just a little bit of self-contained soil, those resulting food products that we eat can never have the nutrient density or even come close to rival the nutrient density of foods that are grown in healthy soil. There is a dramatic difference and we are proving the difference in that regard. So in doing so, we've been working with a number of researchers in evaluating phytonutrient richness in all different types of foods, whether it be plant-based foods like fruits and vegetables and nuts and so forth, or whether it be protein-based foods, animal protein-based foods like beef, pork, eggs, poultry, lamb, all of that, dairy products, you name it. So what we're finding here is that phytonutrient richness in foods is first and foremost dependent on key soil health parameters. And those parameters are all driven by the biology, the microbiology of the soil. Soils that have a microbiological richness, both in terms of diversity of microbes, the array of microbial species that are in the soil and active, and in terms of the total living microbial biomass. So both of those are crucial in in being able to impart high phytonutrient richness in our foods that we're eating. So soils that are devoid or lacking in this microbial population and total living microbial biomass are going to produce foodstuffs that are much less dense in nutritional value. And likewise, foods from soils that are rich in microbial species and biomass are going to produce a much more nutrient-dense food. So we're working with researchers like Dr. Fred Provenza, Dr. Scott Cromberg, Dr. Stefan Van Vliet, and others. And Stefan Van Vliet, Dr. Van Vliet, has actually, you know, now taken the lead in this research. And he was at the Duke University School of Medicine. And he has now taken, uh, you know, Fred Provenza is a retired professor emeritus from Utah State University. And Dr. Van Vliet has actually filled uh, Fred's role, Dr. Provenza's role at Utah State University and continuing this research. What Dr. Van Vliet and his team of researchers are doing is this. They are doing the most comprehensive food nutritional analysis ever done, ever done. We're a part of this. So within Understanding Ag, we were an integral part of this research and our own farms are also a part of this research. So so my own farms are a part of this. Gabe's, Shane News, and many others are a personal part of this research. You know, most nutritional research done in foods is done how? Uh, the, The researchers will take a food that's already been produced and analyze it. So they'll take a cheese or the milk or the beef or the pork or or the wheat or whatever and and directly analyze it. And they may do a survey with the farmers that produced it, if they even know (laughs) what farmers produced it, which oftentimes can be incredibly difficult to even find out by the researchers. But they may do a farm survey and say, how did you raise this and what do you think? you have in your soils and so forth, right? But that's all that's all they do. It's just a it's just a survey. 
And you know and I know surveys can be very, very wrong because it's dependent on how people answer the questions and even their understanding of the questions and even their understanding of what they're doing. So I always take surveys with a huge grain of salt you know, because of that. There's always large margins for, of error in these surveys. But what Dr. Van Vliet and his team are doing is they're not leaving this up to guesswork. They're looking at the entire cycle of production here. So for instance, in collecting data on my farm, they will come out and, and routinely, you know, visit after visit, we would collect soil samples on every field that our livestock were grazing. We would collect plant samples. So we would observe what they're eating and collect plant samples, including the portions of the plant that we observe them eating for analysis. We would then collect the fecal material, so fresh fecal material at the same time for analysis. And then finally, the end product, the beef, the lamb, the eggs, whatever, and do analysis on that. That's never been done before, where you're analyzing the soil, the plants, the fecal matter, and the actual food stuff itself all at the same time. So this is incredibly rich and detailed research that is the first of its kind. It's very cutting edge. And the result, the preliminary results that we're seeing are, are quite staggering. Now, there'll be, uh, you know, some peer-reviewed articles coming out this year relative to this, and they'll be coming out on an ongoing basis. So this will be available for the public. I'll just share some very quick preliminary things with you. But what we are finding is that the more biologically active the soil is, so that's a part of the soil analysis, that's the reason for collecting the soil samples, the more biologically rich and active the soil is, then the more phytonutrients the plants growing in that soil have. And therefore, the animals eating those plants, we're finding more phytonutrient richness in the fecal matter and obviously more phytonutrient richness in the end product, the meat, the milk, the eggs, the poultry, whatever the case may be. So it transfers from the soil to the plant, to the animal, and then to us in this phytonutrient richness. And what we are finding is that pastures and rangeland that are far more diverse in the plant species that are growing there. So now we're going back to that good old rule of diversity, right? So the more diverse these fields are that these animals are eating from, the more phytonutrient richness there is in the end product that we eat. And the same goes for the plant foodstuffs that we eat. So any foodstuff at all. So let me give you an example of how profound these differences can be. So the results have found as much as an 85% difference. So comparing beef to beef. So feedlot beef your conventional feedlot beef compared to grass-fed beef and grass-finished from highly diverse pastures. Now, again, that's key. Not monoculture and low-diversity pastures, but highly diverse pastures. We have found as much as an 85% difference in the same beef product, depending upon how that product was, that animal was raised, and how diverse their diet was. 85% difference. So the animals eating and finished on the far more diverse forage-based diet had an 85% higher nutrient density than the beef from the feedlot animals. Now that's profound. Think about the difference in our health 
especially lifetime cumulative health impact if we're eating one food routinely versus the other. We're finding the same thing in all of our plant-based foods, our vegetables, our fruits, our nuts. The exact same principle is applying here. And I'm going to go one step deeper here. Now, we often think of a typical nutritional panel on a food. You know, that nutritional panel you see now on the back of practically every food and drink that we consume. What What does it tell us on that nutritional panel? Protein, sugars, carbohydrates, fats, maybe saturated fats, and total calories, right? That's it. That nutritional panel, and and again, this is my opinion, but it's backed up by what we now know, frankly, is pretty worthless. I can take the biggest junk food and on that very (laughs) basic nutritional panel, make it look like a health food when it's not, not at all. So these basic nutritional panels are not doing us a lot of good in helping us make food choice decisions. When we have this data out and available to the general public, they'll be able to make far, far more informed decisions about the foodstuffs that they select and put in their bodies. That's why we're doing this. So the basic nutritional panel is looking at just a handful of primary nutritive factors, protein, sugars, carbohydrates, fats. That's it. That's it. These, this phytonutrient research is using what is called metabolomic analysis and is looking at more than 2,000 different nutrient factors in any food. And there's four main nutritional groups that comprise these 2,000 plus nutrients, terpenes, phenols, tocopherols, and carotenoids. So we're looking at four principal groups that contain more than 2,000 different nutritive factors are being analyzed here in this suite. So, so again, it's the most comprehensive nutritional research ever done. It goes far deeper, not just in the factors that are analyzed, the soil, the plants, the fecal matter, and the actual food stuff itself, but also goes far deeper in the actual analysis. So instead of looking at just protein, sugars, carbs, and fats, those four things, we're looking at more than 2,000 different nutritional factors that actually impact our health far more than the protein, fats, carbs, and sugars. So that's what we're finding. It is an incredible array of research that is being conducted right now. In my opinion, this is a major game changer for human nutrition and human health. And it will now allow it will put power back into the hands of consumers. You cannot hide this. You can't fake it. You can do that. You can do all of that on a typical nutritional panel. Like I said, I can take any junk food and on that nutritional panel, make it look or appear healthy when it's not at all. With this, you cannot do that. There's no gaming. There's no cheating. You know, this is telling the, this is transparent and it will allow the consumer to know the truth. So now, in just a few short years, we're going to be able to put the power back in the consumer's hands and allow them to make decisions. Now, in my mind, this is going to have a profoundly positive impact on the future growth of regenerative agriculture, because as consumers become aware of this data being available and this this research being available, they are going to start demanding more and more nutrient-dense foods. Then those grocery stores, those restaurants, and so forth are going to start demanding that from their suppliers, and those suppliers are going to go back 
to the farmers and ranchers and say, hey, we got to have this. That's when we make real progress. So we're getting very close. Well, that's really exciting. And I could see a market situation in the future where you maybe would have a label or a brand that's known for environmental benefits and these uh, nutrient benefits. And and that uh, because it seems like in the past, we've been able to try to promote some of these practices as well. They're good. They're building carbon and they're good for uh, water quality and all that. It seems like it hasn't quite been enough to really monetize that and, and pay off for the farmer. So combining it with the nutrient piece, because people do shop, you know, they kind of shop in a selfish way. Yep. <laughs> they want to know, how is this impacting me? So that is really exciting, I think. Well, it is. And, and the other thing that we're discovering is that you actually feel better, you know, when you're eating these more nutrient-dense foodstuffs. So your body quickly tells you the difference as well. And we have noted that ourselves because, you know, we routinely eat foodstuffs from our own farms, our own ranches. And when we go on the road, you know, as we often do to speak and consult, I've noticed that whenever we eat in restaurants and things like that, our bodies tell us pretty quickly, oh my gosh, why did you put that in me? Even though you try to select what you think is the healthiest thing off the menu, our bodies tell us the difference literally within 10 to 15 minutes. And that is a real phenomenon that that really occurs. So as more and more consumers are able to purchase, you know, these nutrient dense foods and their bodies start telling them the difference and they start to see, you know, health problems diminish, then this is going to drive that even more. Yeah, it seems like maybe another example where the science is kind of catching up with some of these exciting advances in soil health that, and they kind of go hand in glove a little bit where you are able to say, yeah, there's some science behind this, maybe some things that people have been observing for a long time, but they didn't weren't quite able to put a scientific basis on it. I assume a lot of the science around nutrient density of food and all that has been pretty recent. That That is correct. This is very recent. And again, it's because nobody has delved prior to this into, you know, all of these spectra, you know, starting with the soil biological profile first and building up from there. Nobody's measured that before. And the whole nexus of this, you know, the whole genesis of why this came about is the work that was done by Fred Provenza over the last 40 years, you know, and his findings. So Fred's work was seminal in being able to to allow us to start to understand these interactions and, and how they actually end up affecting us. And then that led to Dr. Van Vliet and, and Dr. Scott Kromberg and the work that they're all doing now. And the other thing, they're actually adding a fifth dimension to this in doing human clinical trials as well. So those will also be an added dimension to this research. So again, by far the uh, most in-depth set of research ever done looking at nutritional value of food. This is the last episode in this series of conversations with Dr. Williams. To find links to the other three episodes, see the podcast page for Ear to the Ground episode number 279 at landstewardshipproject.org. As we're recording this series, Alan is scheduled to be in southeastern Minnesota for a pair of Land Stewardship Project field days August 17th and 18th, 2022. 
For details on these events and resources related to Alan's work, see the links on our podcast page. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly. If you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSB. Thanks for listening.